0: Well, it is indeed a privilege to come as your sister church and as your pastor. And we delight what the Lord is doing in your midst here at at CRBC. And we're thankful for our partner churches in the Reformed Baptist Network that help support this church plant. And in many ways, our involvement in the Reformed Baptist Network as a church in Toronto and uh, by extension here in Barbados was in part motivated uh, to buy the situation that we wanted to plant see a church planted here in Barbados The vision for the reformed baptist network that was started in 2016 the year before this church started Was based on that great commission that pastor john read to you in the law section that Jesus famously outlined for us and uh, the, the the vision statement is that we would glorify god through fellowship and cooperation in fulfilling the Great Commission to the ends of the earth. And we saw that this Great Commission isn't just in one place in Matthew chapter 28. We looked last Sunday night at Acts 1 verse 8, where Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But... What does this mean? What did Jesus intend when he he called for churches to be established, uh, Christian churches to be established around the world? Well, I think in our modern day, there's a lot of confusion about what a Christian church is. Though apparently Christianity is the largest... Uh, denomination in the world and there are apparently billions of us if you are to look at uh, wikipedia or any of the the sources that sort of identify religions in the world they'll tell you that there are billions of christians but i think if we understand the scriptures rightly many of those people that claim that name do not fit the biblical definition of a follower and a believer in jesus christ In my country, the largest Protestant denomination is called uh, the United Church of Canada. And originally, when it was formed in 1925, it was still something of an evangelical church where the gospel was preached. But now, over 90 years later, the most famous preacher in the uh, United Church is a woman, Greta Bosper, who is an avowed atheist. She very clearly denies that there is a God. And she is a minister in the largest Protestant denomination in Canada. And after years of publicly attacking uh, the Christianity of the church, she was finally, finally brought up on heresy charges. Or she was going to be brought up on heresy charges. But the church backed down and made an agreement, and now she feels free to continue to press her teaching here in Canada. And to teach in the church, in a Protestant church, that there is no God. But you guys may be sitting there and thinking, wow, well, this is Barbados. Not like you're crazy Canadian. No. Yes. yes, I know it. So called churches. But I want to challenge that. Is that really the case? The first time I came to Barbados, uh, I was approached on the street. And uh, as you know, I probably do stand out an awful lot. Uh, <laughs> I don't, it's not very easy for me to camouflage myself here in Barbados, but a man approached me when I was downtown and he offered to connect me to drugs, assuming that I wanted to come and, and uh, engage in that because I was, I was alone at the time. My wife was not with me. I was actually with another member of the church and uh, I replied to him that I was a minister of the gospel. Oh, sorry. Before that, sorry. When I said no to the drugs, he then offered me women. And I replied to him that I was a minister of the gospel. And that he needed the Lord Jesus Christ. But what was interesting was he immediately at that point switched his tone. And he said he was a Christian too. And I pointed out to him the very obvious fact that he had just wickedly offered me illegal drugs and prostitutes. And his response was that he was troubled by a demon. But that he was indeed a Christian. And I re- responded to him that, based on the Bible, that was impossible. Because a Christian cannot be demon possessed, because the scriptures very clearly say in 1 John 4:4, 4, 4, He that is in you is greater, and he interrupted me, than he that is in the world. 1 John 4:4. 4, 4. He knew the Bible verse. He knew the scriptures. And I continued the conversation for some time, but it was evident by his language, his demeanor, his actions, that despite being brought up in a Christian Barbadian culture, going to Sunday school, despite memorizing scripture, he did not know what a biblical Christian was, and he was anything but what the Bible describes as a biblical Christian. This is a, a problem in Christian societies. It reminded me when I was there of the time when I was in South, the South of the United States, when we were in seminary and it was a bit of a culture shock for me coming from Toronto, which is a very liberal secular society. But one of the first questions that I was asked whenever I met anybody in South Carolina is what church do you go to? I was like, how did you know that I go to church? How did you know I was a Christian? You know, it was, it was curious, but that was just the culture of the time. But the longer that I stayed, the more I realized that the sad and dirty secret is that while many claim to be Christians and to have a church, many of them uh, had never darkened the door. I remember having a conversation with a young man and I asked him if he was a Christian because in the culture, that that was the freedom. That was the first question I asked him when he came to fix my car. He said, oh, yes, sir. I said, oh, what church do you go to? He said, oh, First Baptist over here. It's like, oh, yeah, I know that church. And I said, when was the last time that you visited it? Oh, Sir. Probably 15 or 20 years ago when I walked the aisle. That was it. And yet he believed that he was a church-following, gospel-believing Christian. Many people have that apprehension that they are Christians when, in fact, they bear no fruit, no spiritual fruit in their lives. And this is the, the test that we see in scriptures. is: If we want to determine if someone is a Christian, we should expect them to bear the spiritual fruit. And some of those things show in their their devotion to Jesus Christ. If you haven't attended church in 15 years, you have a very tenuous, if any, grasp on the claim to be a Christian. So, how do we regain perspective on what a Christian church ought to be and do? Well, as always, we go back to the sources. The Reformers had a cry in the, the 16th and 17th centuries called Ad Fontis, back to the sources. So we go back to the scriptures and before us in our passage this morning, we have for the first time in the book of Acts, the real beginning of the fulfillment of Jesus's great commission to his church. And I say the real beginning because as we read from Acts chapter one, verse eight, that the commission of Jesus Christ was not to just the people in Jerusalem. It was to all nations and here we start to see in Acts 11, the gospel spreading beyond Israel into the surrounding nations. And we've seen the beginnings of this with the earlier in the, in the chapter, earlier in the book of Acts, where we see the uh, disciple, Philip, evangelizing a solitary Ethiopian eunuch. But in this passage, it addresses the planting of one of the first truly Christian churches, In Antioch. Now, God raised up this remarkable church and it became an evangelistic center for 500 years until the city was destroyed by an earthquake in 526 AD. Now, if you don't know the growth of the Christian church in the first few centuries AD, it's phenomenal. Church history, brothers and sisters, is worth studying, it's encouraging. They started with this ragtag band of disciples, and they spread the gospel throughout all of the known world at the time. And it, it and it, according to historical estimates, uh, is spreading across the world to encompass about ten percent of the world's population in just three hundred years following Jesus Christ. And according to one historical um, researcher, it was a very multi-ethnic. Congregation. This congregation that began in Antioch, uh, according to the research, two-thirds of the first believers in Antioch were non-white in their a- ethnicity. So this church in Antioch gives us an example of a faithful, multicultural, multi-ethnic church that brings the gospel cross-culturally. This morning we're going to observe at least three things about this first Christian church in Antioch. First, it was a church that was faithful to Christ's name and commission. Secondly, it was led by faithful men with faithful teaching. And third, it was a church that showed forth the fruit, the love of Jesus Christ in faithful actions, as well as words. So that's our outline this morning. A Christian church is faithful to Christ's name and Christ's commission. And it's accountable to and led by faithful men with faithful teaching. And this results in the mature expression and love that's there. And it's my prayer that five years, 50 years, 500 years from now, CRBC will be reflecting these biblical values as we move forward. Let's consider, first of all, what it means, what it meant for this church to be faithful to Christ's name and commission. And one of the things that's interesting to note about this church as it's established is that it came at a time of persecution. Great persecution. And at the same time, there was great thriving. This church at Antioch began because of the faithfulness of the saints. They were faithful to the name and commission of Jesus Christ. Now, just to contextualize it, to bring you in a little bit, this chapter begins and brings us right back to the events following Stephen, the first or the, we should say the second christian martyr because jesus was the first back in acts eight and at that point saul before he was called the apostle paul had initiated a horrible persecution and people were being driven from their homes and imprisoned or killed because they were christians now i want you to think about that if you were in a situation where you were being persecuted or killed because you were a Christian, what would your tendency be? Would your tendency be to to, to duck down and sort of hide who you are and and move somewhere and, and live out a quiet existence? I think if we're honest, that would be generally how we would respond when facing opposition or persecution. The last thing that we would be thinking about in that situation is evangelism. Isn't that what got us in the problem in the first place? Right? But that wasn't the case for these early converted Christian Jews. They believed Christ's commission and they took it literally. And they began to spread the good news, even when they were being driven from their homes. Can you imagine that? The very thing that made you odious and got you evicted was the thing that you continue to propagate. It was as if they couldn't stop themselves. They just gossiped the gospel as they went. It's tempting, isn't it, for us to avoid the trouble in our own neighborhoods. We don't really want to aggravate our neighbors. We might even feel comfortable going into another neighborhood and preaching the gospel or speaking about it, but but you don't want to sort of, you know, you don't want to kind of ruffle feathers amongst your neighbors. And it's easy for us to live sort of a comfortable Christian existence. It gets uncomfortable when you speak to people about the gospel in your neighborhood and they start to hold you accountable and perhaps don't have as favorable a view of you because you have challenged their worldview. It's easy to think that evangelism in a church is really, that's really the pastor's responsibility. You know, and Pastor John speaks to unbelievers who come and, and, and visit the church and, and, and who meet, and he meets them in the community. That's sort of his role. And while I would agree that it is the pastor's primary role to lead in evangelism, here in this passage, we see something interesting. We see the first detailed account of evangelism by ordinary people. Ordinary believers where they where they live. Look at verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, if you're following the narrative in the book of Acts, prior to this, those accounts of evangelism are only involving the apostles or prophetic leaders, such as Stephen or Philip. Here, though, it's just ordinary folks. It's ordinary people evangelizing where they live and where they work. And this is something that I think is very instructive for us to understand. The work of the gospel, the work of spreading the gospel, is not just the work of the pastors. The work of the gospel is the work of every Christian. We meet together to pray together for the work. And God uses the prayers of his people, but he also uses the gospel conversations that we have. You think about it in terms of who we have uh, and, and who we are. As pastors, we have a limited amount uh, ability to reach people. But if you look at every individual in this congregation together, we know many other people and we have an opportunity to communicate the gospel to them. And this is what we see and what we see happening in Antioch. The regular people themselves without a pastor at this particular time are speaking the gospel to the people around them as refugees. And it wasn't a planned affair. The text reads as if, uh, one commentator said, as if they bumbled into it. You know, there's, there's no purpose or mission statement, no target audience or demographic. They're just following Jesus' commission. They just did it. They spoke the gospel to their neighbors. They endured persecution and thrived as Christians despite it. And you know, the, the interesting thing that, that has been really that I've been thinking about a lot this week is just how you know in in, in our modern lives we compartmentalize things. And we say, "Well, I've got this to do and I've got this to do," and I, don't, I just don't have time for that kind of thing. Well, the example of the early Christians is a bit of a review to that, right? While well, they're being driven from their homes and they've got other lives, and they're trying to imagine trying to get a place and, and 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 find a new job and a new place and all of those kind of priorities that we we list, and it's not that they weren't trying to do that, but at the same time. They were speaking of Jesus Christ. They spoke of why they were moving and because of their convictions. And the Lord blessed that in a time of persecution. They endured persecution and thrived as Christians despite it. And it's interesting, too, to see how the gospel starts to cross barriers, all kinds of them. First of all, we see this this reference to them speaking to Greeks and to non-Jews. Now, up to this point, most of the converts in Christianity have mainly been Jews based in Jerusalem. But God, who works all things for good, worked through the persecution in Jerusalem to scatter them. It's almost as if they had come. Pentecost is often referred to as the reverse Babel. right? You remember the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament where they, they come and they build up this, this temple idolatrously to, to reach the heavens. And uh, God creates languages and different languages to scatter them. And then at Pentecost, in in Acts, we see that the Holy Spirit is poured out and and they're able to speak in tongues. Tongues that were intelligible and they were preaching the gospel. And people were being saved by hearing the gospel come in their own tongues. And so these these people then have have been saved and they're in Jerusalem, but they're stuck there. They're there in Jerusalem. And Jesus' commission was not just to Jerusalem, it was to all Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so God uses the persecution of Saul, who will later be his apostle. Like you start to see the sovereignty of God in all of this to bring about the evangelization of the world. And starting with the persecution, there was some evangelism of half Jews, the Samaritans, which occurred at the time like we read of Philip in Acts 8. And there were individual encounters, as we said, like Philip had with the Ethiopian eunuch. But here we see something different. Because we see ordinary believers now, not leaders of the church, ordinary believers evangelizing the Hellenists. The Hellenists would have been the Greeks. They would have been Gentiles, not Jews. These early Jewish Christians were taking the gospel beyond the borders of Israel, both literally and ethnically. And it's important for us to understand a little bit about Antioch, the, 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 the place where they settled Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria. It was north of Jerusalem big, 10 to 20 times bigger than Jerusalem. And it was strategically located on a river 15 miles upstream from the Mediterranean Sea. It was a major commercial center and it was the capital of the Roman province of Syria. It was also a center of religion as well. So it wasn't as if it was irreligious. The cultic worship of Daphne, the Roman goddess, was centered in this area. It was also the military headquarters of the Eastern Roman Empire. This is where the the centurions and their armies were based. So it was a very strategic location. It was also a very cosmopolitan city filled with Gentile Romans and Syrians. As we see uh, Cypriots and, and Cyrenians and Jews. And Cyrenians, in case you didn't realize were it, Cyrene was a northern city From Africa It's near Tripoli They were Libyans So the thing that, that is important for us To, to begin to, to realize Is that there's a real mix of people A mix of ethnicities From multiple continents They would have had black people They would have white people They would have Arab, Jew, and Asian All in this first church Outside Jerusalem and when I read this passage and was meditating on it, I was just reflecting on some of the similarities between Antioch and my own home city of Toronto. Our city is a large cosmopolitan city. 51% of our population was not born in Toronto or Canada. They are born and came as immigrants. And you can see every language and people represented. And out of that, we have had the privilege and the opportunity to extend that gospel. And to send out one of our pastors to come and to establish a church here. We're privileged to partner with you in planting the church here in Barbados. And our prayer is that you would do the same. That you would likewise go and preach gospel, pre, plant gospel preaching churches here in Barbados and Grenada and, and beyond the ends of the earth. Maybe you can come to Canada and help us plant some there too. But it's interesting. The church that was planted here in Antioch reflected the city. It was an ethnically diverse church. It was not, and this is an important point, an ethnic church. The commission of Jesus Christ was not exclusively for Jewish people. It was not exclusively for white people or black people or Asian people or Hispanic people. It was not for Canadians or Basians. It was for all nations. And when the church formed, they didn't set up their own private ethnic churches, predominantly white or black or Jew or Gentile. They all set up under one roof. It's interesting, even the geography of the city is interesting. They, it used to be divided into quarters, there were walls between the Jewish quarter and the Roman quarter and, and, and the, uh, the African quarter, all of these things. So what, when, you, when you realize, what, what caused people to cross those barriers? To go to church. Because what united them was Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. The universal application of the gospel is to all people, Everywhere it's what unifies. And this is what, where the world divides. This is the one way that the church is different. According to God's creation, there's only one race. The human race. We're all descended from Adam and Eve. And every human being has one need and one imperative. To worship and serve the living God. Even the people in the city of Antioch recognized that there was something different about these people they were faced with a dilemma as to how to refer to this Antiochian church. They couldn't call it a Jewish sect. They couldn't call it the Jews over there. Because it wasn't just Jews. It was Jews and Gentiles alike. And up to this point, if you think about it, religion was defined ethnically. So what do you call a people when you can't identify them ethnically? You've got to look at what they believe. And what do they believe? They believe that they are followers of Christ. So, how do you call them? Well, verse 26 tells us. And when they found him, he brought them to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the Antioch and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Christians. This is the first nomenclature of that, the followers of Christ as Christians in the New Testament. And it came together because it would not be accurate to call them Jews. Because it wasn't their ethnic identity as Jews or Semites that separated, separated them from others. No, there was there were Semites and there were non-Semites. There was black, whites, and all other kinds of things here. This was a center of trade. This was a center of the empire. All people. All nations. And ideally, the Christian church is not an ethnic church. That does not reflect a New Testament pattern. And... I rejoice to see a reflection of the population of the country that where we are. We should see the church reflecting the population of the area. And I rejoice in that in, in CRBC. And, and I pray that as the Lord continues to grow you and extend you in all directions, in all neighborhoods, and to all peoples and demographics here on this island. We want young people. We want middle-aged people. We want older, elderly people. Poor rich everyone and anyone we all need the gospel of jesus christ our needs are the same i think this is something that's worth even considering further because have you ever considered the fact that every other major religion has for the most part maintained its ethnicity and geography think about islam it's rooted in Arab culture and is although it's spreading it's overwhelmingly spread centered in the Middle East. Hinduism and Buddhism likewise are seen most in eastern and south Asian areas. But what religion seems to be the most borderless? Well there are other religions that have spread around the world but Christianity is by far the most widespread belief system and it's moved beyond just one main ethnicity to incorporate the entire world population. It's neither a black religion nor a white religion or an Asian religion or a Middle Eastern religion. Christianity is a global phenomenon and we should expect that because it is a universal message. It's a differentiation from the worldly religions. Christ is the focus not geography not local culture this is not a barbadian church this is a christian church my church is not a canadian church it is a christian church that is the dominant thing now we have we have of course cultural influences that influence some of the things that we do but primarily we are looking back and we are examining what does the scriptures teach and so our churches should have lots of things and some similar. There may be some differences. There may be some differences in the order of worship. There may be some differences in uh, the, the, the music that we sing. All of those things may be different. But ultimately, the basics, the biblical elements of worship should be the same universally. Because we worship the same God. Now notice how the Antiochian Christians emphasize Jesus as the hope of Israel. Just as, uh, sorry, they emphasize the Lord Jesus here. Now, they do it a little bit differently than we see has been uh, exemplified in the book of Acts. Peter, earlier in the book of Acts, spoke of Jesus as the hope of Israel. But these... Christians, when they first are speaking to these Jews, when they're first speaking to the Gentiles, they emphasize the Lordship of Jesus. Look at what it says there in verse 20. They preaching the Lord Jesus. And this is the pattern that we see throughout the book of Acts. Just as Paul would go to Athens and declare the unknown God, here the Antiochians emphasized the Lordship of Jesus. The Messiah, not just of the Jews. But of the whole world, the one who gave them the commission to go beyond Jerusalem. And that's the universal appeal of the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for sinners like you and me. The reality is that everyone in here in this room needs the message of Jesus Christ. Of course, those of you who are believers already have received it, but maybe you're here this morning and you haven't actually encountered the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. That applies to all of us. And the Bible is very clear. We need this because there is no one righteous. No, not one. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. The book of Romans chapter 3 goes through it. It basically eliminates any possible power that we have in and of ourselves to save ourselves. In Romans chapter 3 it says there is no one righteous. No, not one. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And this is true, isn't it? God was praying, even if you, are, you, you would stop sinning now, your past sins would condemn you. We all need Jesus Christ. We need the gospel. And Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus, is the hope of the world. He came down. He, he who had equality with God, did not consider equality with God something he grasped, it, made himself nothing, taking on human nature. He came, he lived a perfect life without sin. And he did what had to be done. And go to the cross to bear the wrath of God for our sins. The wrath that you and I all equally deserve. I'm not some special status because I'm the preacher. I'm a sinner who is redeemed by Jesus Christ just like you. If you believe and trust in him. And he's not only... Cancelled sin on the cross. He triumphed over death by being raised from the ground three days later. And then he was, as we read last Sunday night, he ascended into heaven and he is ruling and reigning on high and he will come back. And the scripture says he came first in John 3, 17, not, he came not to judge the world, but to save the world. And that's the message that we bring to you. That's the gospel. Jesus comes as Savior. Do you believe that He is your Savior? Because there is a day. Hebrews says there there is a time appointed at which we will die. And after that, face the judgment. And there is a judgment day where Jesus will return and hold us all accountable. So we need this gospel. We need this Savior. We need the Lord Jesus. Christ. So these Jewish men and women labored together in the church of Antioch to bring the good news of Jesus Christ saving sinners to their new neighbors. And they grew greatly in numbers. And again, we talked about this last week. You know, what's the engine of church growth? Was it door prizes or raffle tickets or some other gift gimmick? And you might think, "Oh, no one would do that. They do it. When I was in South Carolina, there was a, a church. This was about 15 years ago in Georgia that was so desperate to attract people to boost its numbers and status that they did a raffle for an SUV in its Easter service. Now you can imagine. They had a pretty packed house. You had to get your ticket at the beginning and you had to stay to the end. You couldn't leave. But this is how they thought that they would grow their church. Crazy stuff. Unbiblical stuff. How did this church grow? Verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. How were they saved? Sovereignly. Through the power and the hand of the Lord. Working through weak fishermen. Working through through people that were refugees. Pushed out of their land. But willing to speak. Willing to simply speak about Jesus Christ. Amazing. Amazing. Do you notice something here? Even as this church is being established, there's no names. These people are anonymous. Now I know your names. Pastor John and I have been praying for you throughout this week. One of the things we do when we come together is we spend an extended time praying for the congregation. So we pray for you by name. We know your names, but lots of people don't. The world doesn't. But the Lord does. And those people labored for him. No names. These people were Jews in Jerusalem establishing this great church that lasted for 500 years. But at this historic moment in church history, there's no plaque on the wall. Names are not important. Jesus. His name is important. God is the one who builds this church. So we must also engage in the gospel, but do do so submitting it all, and doing it all, not for our own glory, not to start johnridisgard.com or chrispowell.com, but to do it so that Jesus Christ is exemplified. The Christian church at Antioch was faithful to the commission and name of Jesus Christ. But secondly... They were also led by faithful men with faithful teaching. There's a lot that could be said here, but I think what's important to notice is that this new church plan in Antioch was actually accountable to the broader church, the broader body of Jesus Christ. Antioch maintained ties with the Jews in Jerusalem. It was, in a basic sense, an associational relationship. And in this passage, we see pastors and prophets and apostles coming to the pulpit from the other Christian church in Jerusalem. It's connected in a network. It's much like we seek to be organized as churches in a network of churches, collaborating together for the advancement of Christ's great commission. Even as John explained, our, 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 our leadership, sharing our leadership is, is a means for us to, to help, to, to, to encourage one another. And indeed, you are blessing us uh, as you are considering this. And in the Lord's timing, you will yourselves, Lord willing, consider voting to join the network. Independent of the Toronto Church, as you as you achieve your own financial self-independence and, and and pursue your own way. And and the relationship with Covenant will still always be warm, but you will be entirely independent. You will have an independent leadership. Now notice when news of this developing church at Antioch traveled Jerusalem. What does the Jerusalem church do? Well, they send Barnabas to investigate. Verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. That's a little bit unlike our situation where an ordained pastor, John, was sent out from Toronto to start a church. Barnabas here came to certify a church that had just popped up. Sometimes this is how church planting happens. In the Reformed Baptist Network, we've had uh, uh, families that have been meeting together that that sometimes call and contact the head office and say, Listen, do you have a church planter? Someone that can come to our community and, and help us to form a church? This is sort of the situation that's happening there. But it's instructive as well, because Barnabas came to evaluate them as a Christian church. Even in the time of the Acts of the Apostles, or especially in the time of the Acts of the Apostles, there was a need for accountability. He wanted to make sure that they were a Christian church. And he came to look for evidence of the grace of God. And look, he found it. Verse 23, when he came and saw, what did he see? The grace of God. He was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. And of faith. What did Barnabas want? He wanted to make sure that they understood the grace of the gospel. He wanted to understand that they were preaching good teaching. There was a doctrinal standard in the book of Acts. Now we're here in the 2020 in a reformed Baptist church. And you may have grown up in a church that states that they avoid doctrinal. They don't like doctrine. After all, we've all heard doctrine divides, right? But it does. And that's the point. The gospel ought to divide. Imagine if Barnabas had come and found that the church had turned away from the grace of Christ. Do you think he would have embraced them? He was glad. That means that he didn't know before he came fully what was going on. But when he came, he's like, oh, yes, the gospel is here. And there's an immediate kinship and a love, and he starts exhorting them to remain faithful to the doctrine, to remain faithful to the teaching. There's a standard here. He wanted to make sure that the gospel of Jesus Christ was being faithfully preached and delivered. And that's in line with the Bible teaching. And members of CRBC, this is your responsibility as well. You are responsible for what is tolerated to come from this pulpit. As a Christian congregation, you need to hold the officers of this church to the doctrine of the scriptures. Our confession of faith is a secondary document, but it is a help in this regard. It's a summary of biblical teaching, and that's what must be taught in a Christian church. As you examine our brother and consider others for leadership in the church, you need to make sure, are they faithful to the word of God? You need to be like the Berean church in Acts 17.11, who when they had the Apostle Paul come, they didn't say, oh, it's the Apostle Paul. Well, we can put our Bibles away for this week because, you know, it's the Apostle Paul. No. They examined carefully, Acts 17.11. They examined carefully to make sure that what he was saying, to see if they were so, is the actual phrase. What were they examining? Well, in the context, they were examining the teachings of the Apostle Paul and Silas to see if they were in line with the Old Testament. So Barnabas came to evaluate. Barnabas was a real encourager as well. We see that he's used throughout the book of Acts. He's a fascinating Character study for you to look. He's the one that ultimately brought Saul the persecutor and certified him and brought him into the church at Jerusalem. You know, Paul that was out there killing the relatives was saved when he met uh, on the road to Damascus Jesus Christ and Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, uh, and he was converted miraculously. And the first thing that he did, by the way, was not just sort of hang out. The first thing he did was he tried to join the local church. Now, you can imagine that if, you know, someone who had been persecuting you came to your church, you'd be like, ooh, be careful, don't look him in the eye, right? We don't want him here, and in fact, they didn't, and he tried many times. But Barnabas was the one who came and brought him in. He was an encourager, a godly man. Now, why was he such an encourager? Well, again, verse 24 says that he was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. As we said, this is what a Christian is. There aren't some Christians that are full of the Holy Spirit and others that are not. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon you. And he had the Holy Spirit and he had faith. And what matters most in your Christian life is the the outworkings of that. He had the character. It's interesting, isn't it? You can have people that are good workers and good servants. But as we said last week, as we were talking about the qualifications for ministry and for diaconate, it's not so much the, the skills that are emphasized in the scriptures. It's character. Not all servants are selfless. right? Barnabas could have gone there and, and set up his own, Barnabas.com, and become the pastor of that church. But he recognized that they needed more help. And so he went to get Paul. But not all servants are selfless. I remember reading in Leon Morris in his commentary on this, talks about a fine World War II pilot. He he was a a very good fighter. He was very successful, but he was very proud. And when he was transferred to his next unit, his commanding officer said this. He said, splendid officer at 5,000 feet, but should never come lower. Think about that for a second. He was a good fighter, but he was not a good leader on the ground. Just think about it, too. Others would have been a disaster. Churches need Barnabas I. Barnabases. Quiet ways who work on the side, yes. We've got, we got to find the plural of that. But, we, but churches benefit. Sometimes you think that churches grow because there's a charismatic, sort of dynamic guy at the front but i'll tell you that in my experience a lot of the times churches grow because there are faithful people in the back i remember in my church in south carolina there was a lady in that church who sat at the front of the church but this lady had eyes like a hawk and she would look for visitors and i remember uh i was i was an intern at the time and i was trying to uh meet people who were visiting for the first time and i remember i was sitting at the back and she was sitting at the front but, if there was a visitor, she would get to them before I would, because <laughs> she had such a heart, and she was the one who, 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 who first encountered my wife and me and made us feel, feel like we were at home, even though we were a thousand miles away from anybody that we knew the first time that we arrived in seminary. She was just a barman she was there, and she just was quiet and she was she was uh, seeking to just um, encourage and, and and welcome people there's a tremendous effect that that has on a congregation when people come with the attitude that they're there to serve to encourage the body of christ you don't have to be able to preach you just need to be able to exemplify christ in your situation even in even in evangelism even in sharing the gospel sometimes you think well i haven't studied apologetics i don't have an answer for every question that's out there but you do have an answer for how jesus saved you And you can tell people about that. You can tell them about what a miserable sinner you were and how you were so susceptible to all these things and then Jesus changed your life. That's giving testimony. That's gossiping the gospel. I'm encouraged to see the way in which you minister to each other. One of the ways that I think is powerful is how you share things in common together. I know transportation and gas is expensive, but it encourages me. I'm sitting there in Toronto, and I see your little CRBC chat every week. Can you pick up so-and-so? Yeah, I'll take them. You encourage me 3,000 miles away. It's like, yes, I love it. They want people to hear Jesus. They want to come together. They are a church family. That is encouraging, brothers and sisters. And we need to continue to do that. It's important that we have encouraged. But it's also important that we have faithful men to leave. And and this is where, again, Barnabas shows us he's a good man, he's full of the Holy Spirit, but he's not a proud man. He knew how important it was to provide solid instruction and he'd obviously heard of what had happened with the Apostle Paul and how he was the Apostle of the Gentiles. And he's like, well, we've got the first Gentile church. We need the Apostle of the Gentiles. Come here. Come here. So he goes out. Verse 25 and 26, and he seeks him out. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met at the church and taught a great many people. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christian. He sought out the newly minted Apostle Paul, formerly the artist formerly known as Saul. And Paul came and gave them the red meat of the word that they craved. He brought them for the greater good of the church. And that connection, again, is, is, is communicated here. That there is a broader body of Christ here. Pastors need fellowship and encouragement and accountability. They need other pastors for counsel. They need other pastors to come and help. I'm very thankful for your Pastor John here. He has been a support and he has helped me on many occasions. And your responsibility here as a congregation is to make sure that this pulpit continues to be filled by faithful men who are faithful to Christ and to his gospel. And may God forbid it, but if I or Pastor John or anybody else departs from the biblical gospel in this pulpit, you have a God-given responsibility to remove them. Barnabas' humble actions here teach us that no man is greater than the church. This congregation comes together as a Christian church with Jesus Christ as its head. And there's a hunger for the word of God in the Christian church. They need teaching. They need teaching. I'm reminded of a sermon I heard by Dale Ralph Davis. He's one of my favorite... Uh, preachers if you get a chance online, he, he's, got, he's always encouraging to listen to but he speaks of uh, a Chinese house church in the 1980s. It was led by Brother Young and uh, they, they asked for some ministers to come from America to come and preach to these house churches um, and they would have services where the preaching would be for several hours and then a meal break and then more preaching because they were hungry. they were hungry. Now, apparently, though, they had a problem when they brought in foreign visitors, foreign pastors from the states. They're like, they only give us 45 minutes to an hour of preaching. And he wrote a letter back to the church and he said, don't send us anybody who can't preach more than less than two hours at a time. Now, I promise I won't do that to you this morning. I could. Bit less anyway. But you see, there's a hunger that's there. So we've seen that a Christian church is a church that is faithful to the Great Commission of Jesus Christ to make disciples of all nations. We've also seen that a Christian church is the one that upholds the teachings of the Bible and is led by faithful men. But thirdly, let's consider that they're engaged in faithful acts. We see the maturity of this new Christian congregation expressed in its ministry. This is something that's important for us to understand. It's not enough to be a doctrinal church. We must be a practical church orthodoxy, good doctrine, is nothing without orthopraxy, good practice of that doctrine. In other words, our faith must bear fruit. Our love must be practical and quantifiable. One way we've already seen this developed by the church at Antioch was their evangelistic zeal. But the motivation for evangelism is not self-righteousness. You are not justified by your works. No, the motivation for evangelism here is love and compassion. We talk about orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and orthopathos. Compassion. What is the motivation for us to speak to our neighbors? It's so that they can know the power of Jesus Christ. So that if they ever lose their homes, or if they are ever under scrutiny, or face these things, they have the same refuge that these fleeing refugees had, which was Jesus Christ. And his gospel. That's the good news. There needs to be a love there. Despite being pushed out of their home city and country, these Jews were motivated by love. And that's what caused them to share the gospel. Brothers and sisters, I think that's an important thing for us to consider ourselves. We have a responsibility to love this city of Bridgetown and this country of Barbados. Barbados. Now, as I say it, explain it to my kids, I don't mean kissy, kissy love. I mean practical love, agape love, sacrificial love. Biblical love in this way is not emotional love. It may stir your emotions, and I hope it does. I hope it does. But love in the Bible is very practical in this way. When when Paul commands men to love their wives, he's not commanding them to feel all mushy inside about their wives. He's commanding them to lay down their lives for their wives. Similarly, as a Christian church, you are commanded by Christ to love your neighbor. It may not be easy to do this. It's nothing new that the world is hostile to the church. The church at Antioch was founded out of hostility, out of persecution. But this did not stop their message. In fact, it fueled it. But the mature expression of this love wasn't just in proclaiming the gospel. As we see at the end of our section, this love meant a practical engagement with their brothers and sisters. Though they were the church plant, so to speak, they were not just preoccupied with themselves. They saw the bigger picture. Right, Verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit... That there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So here we see a prophet foretelling. This is something that we see commonly in the pages of the book of Acts. We see this as the scriptures are being, uh, as the church is being established, that God outpoured in a special way uh, gifts to the church to equip them, to enable them. And this is one where we see that there's both prophecy and fulfillment. It was fulfilled in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. They heard of a problem. They heard that there was going to be a famine. So they were like, oh well, yeah, okay, let's, let's have a prayer meeting over there. We'll remember them. No, they dug into their pockets, and they engaged. They, they sent relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas, and Saul, You see, the gospel changes everything. One of the ways that the love for Christ manifests itself in a maturing congregation is the way that it cares for others. We see in the New Testament, for example, passages like 1 Timothy 5, which gives instructions on how mercy ministry is to be administered in the local church. There are New Testament examples of ministering to the poor and the needy, to widows and orphans. And the reality is, as Jesus said, the poor are always with us. They're present everywhere. There are those who are needy. And it's not just a financial thing, sometimes it's giving your time or your talents to help others. One of the things that this church at Antioch does is give one of their most precious gifts from God, they give their pastor. Can you imagine what it would have been like for the church at Antioch to give up Paul? I mean, you've got the Apostle Paul. There's no higher billing than that. Right? But they sent him out. Because they love the gospel. They love the extension of his kingdom. They send out their pastor to minister elsewhere so that others may hear the glory of Jesus Christ. So that more can be reached. A Christian congregation works in concert with others to love as God loved us. A Christian congregation looks outside of itself to support other works of Christ as well. We need to be, and this is not just a buzzword, we need to be missional. We need to have a heart for the gospel. And we see this kind of thing happening in Antioch and beyond. This Antioch church here Organize this relief work—a ministry to assist in sending church—and I can't help but think of the efforts that are being coordinated to the, among here to indeed help us. As you know, many of you know I'm I'm scheduled in God's grace for a sabbatical this this year. The the church in Toronto and the leadership there have encouraged me to take some time after 12 years and. And uh, to to take some time and rest and and, and, uh, recover and and do a number of things but to do that we need people that can fill the pulpit and we are training up men in, in, uh, in Toronto but we don't have enough and so there are men here that are going to travel and are going to come and support us you're the sending So I think this is a beautiful thing because this church is not some sort of junior partner and I hope you never feel that way We are equal partners in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we serve one another. And just as you've been served from our church, you have the privilege of serving another church. And that's a great joy. That's a great joy to support the advance of the gospel in Toronto, in Bridgetown, and to the ends of the earth. And that's a a truly distinguishing factor. See, this love that's not just about serving your ends and your needs. You'll probably meet. And some of you will never meet some of the other people that you will have an effect on. And some of our people will never meet you. At least until glory. I actually will look forward to seeing the combined congregations of CBC Toronto and CRBC uh, in heaven. But you may never meet them here on earth. But there is this wonderful love. Love. that that connects us so that when you are with other Christians and you invite visitors in there's there's a strange warming of the heart as you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them and I love uh, one of your members uh, this week was saying that this is an opportunity for the cross-pollination of Christian love between our congregations it's a beautiful thing and it's a distinguishing factor of being a Christian I was reading somewhere that if you look at church history in China Before the rise of communism in 1935 for that enormous country with all its populations over half of the hospitals in that country were medical missions started by churches as a means of establishing a bridgehead in an area where the gospel wasn't there. Christians do these kinds of things. They start hospitals. My children and I have been reading about George Mueller and how he started Christian orphanages that grew from a few children to to serve thousands of children. Christians do this because of the love of Jesus Christ. The compassion of Jesus Christ. That orthopathos overflow. And my prayer is for us here at CRBC Barbados that we would follow CRBC Antioch's example. That we would be faithful to Christ's commission, ministering the gospel to all nations, both so as they are found here in Barbados and as you support missions outside of Barbados. That you would uphold faithful men and doctrine. And that you would minister to the saints and see the extension of Christ's kingdom around the world. This is our joy. This is our privilege to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. And to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ to our friends, our family, our neighbors, our co-workers. So that many may be brought and won to Jesus Christ. Just as they were 2,000 years ago in Antioch. May God do this here in Bridgetown. May God work in our hearts to have this mentality, to understand that this is how the Christian church operates, and take our template not from business or culture, but from the Word of God. May that direct us, and may God bless us. Amen.